Well, good morning. Or as we say in my land, g'day. It is my privilege to be able to share with you this morning from God's Word. We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have your Bibles, you want to have them open this morning. Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 13 in just a moment. Uh, It's a real privilege to be here at this uh, church and to spend time with Jim and Lisa over the last few days, uh, along with our kids, has really been terrific. I've got a lot of good stories about Jim, but I signed a legal disclaimer that I wouldn't say anything. So, uh, no, it is wonderful to see how God is using the Samaritans. Let me pray for us and then listen to what God might say to us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to listen to your word now. Father, I pray that amidst the busyness of our lives that we would take this time and this opportunity to pause, to stop, to slow down and to hear what you would say to us. Lord, we are a desperate people, we are a needy people, we are like sheep that so often lack a shepherd. We wander aimlessly, we wander from you, as the song has said, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. And so I pray that as we engage with your word now, that your spirit might take this word of truth and apply it to our hearts so that we would leave this place, not just knowing more information about you, but living in relationship and allowing your spirit to transform the way we think and the way that we act. We ask these things because we want your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be known in our greater world. And so we ask this for his glory. Amen. Well, Phil Turner is a friend of mine and he is quite a different sort of person than I am. If you were to ever meet my friend Phil, he's 56 years of age. He has tattoos that have faded all down his arms. He has a scar on his face that tell of a life of a wild young man many moons ago. Phil and I are quite different and we're actually quite unlikely friends. You see, Phil, on the one hand, loves music. In fact, he's deaf in one ear because he used to play very loud music as a drummer. And while Phil likes music, I am quite different than Phil. I actually enjoy sports. Phil goes to a Pentecostal church, a very large Pentecostal church, and on a Sunday morning can be found in an orange vest directing traffic to the right place. I, on the other hand, am at a conservative Anglican church and I can be found in the, the, the foyer welcoming people on a Sunday morning. Phil and I are quite different. I got married a bit later in life where Phil fathered a child at a very young age. Phil and I are very different, yet there is something compelling about my friend Phil that I want to spend time with this guy. And I think I know what it is. I've met many impressive people over the years. I've met many impressive pastors, great Bible teachers, missionaries who love the Lord. But there is something about Phil's life that attracts me to him that I say, I want to know how to live like you. What is it, Phil? And here's what it is. Phil has discovered grace. Phil lives and exudes grace. You go into a room and when you're with Phil, it doesn't matter if you're a businessman who's a millionaire or a homeless person, you feel like the most important person in the room when you're around Phil. But grace is one of those things that we love to talk about, but it's often hard to put our finger on. 
We sing about grace. It's amazing. Those of us who preach love to preach grace. At the dinner table, we will say grace. Some of us will name our children grace. But what does exuding grace look like? How do you live in such a way that people can look at your life like I look at my friend's Phil life and say, that person exudes something that I need and I want, that thing of grace. To answer that question, we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 9, and that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. And here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to, very simple message this morning, we're going to walk through an account where Master Jesus is going to exude grace on the most unlikely of people. He's going to do that to a man named Matthew. By way of background, we're going to come to this passage. And Matthew, this is one of the interesting parts of the Bible, this is a story about Matthew, but guess who wrote this book? This is a gospel according to Matthew. So here we have an autobiographical account, and this is going to be interesting for a couple of reasons, what Matthew includes in his information, but what Matthew excludes. But by way of background, let me give you the context of what's going on in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is calling people to a radical discipleship that is purely unconventional. He's a young rabbi here working and moving in the Galilee, And he's doing things that don't quite fit the expectation of the Jewish people. Yet he comes as the true son of David, the true Messiah, and it's in that context that we found ourselves, find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 9. Here's how the passage unfolds. We'll look particularly at verses 9 to 13. But uh, by way of background, the passage starts a little bit earlier with this. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law were saying to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and he went home. Now when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Upon hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is unusual in that as we come to it, 
as I said, we have a description of a guy writing this story and this story happens to be about himself. When Jesus goes about his ministry in Galilee, he's been doing things that are quite astonishing. He's been feeding people, he's been calming storms, and as he comes to this passage, he does something that we just don't expect. You see, for a young rabbi calling people to be his disciples, there would be certain types of people that you would choose and certain types of people you would not choose. And if I were writing the Gospel of Matthew and I were directing Jesus and was his stage manager, I would talk him out of this decision to call Matthew. Look at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, that went, upon first reading, we think, well, that's just great, isn't it? Jesus just calls a man and asks him to be a follower. No, you need to understand the gravity and the weight of what Jesus is doing here. You see, a tax collector was not the sort of person a good young rabbi wanting to preach the kingdom of God should choose. You know, in my country of Australia, we have a survey that's put out about once a year of the most trusted professions, the most trusted jobs, and the least trusted professions. The least trusted professions, I'm not sure, maybe similar here in America, but let me read them to you. In Australia, the ranking of the least trusted professions, first of all, lawyers come in at number one. Sorry if I offend anyone today. Uh, business executives come in at number two, taxi drivers number three. Real estate agents, number four, car salesmen, number five, and rounding off the list, politicians. But here's the thing. In Jesus' day, ranking no doubt number one of their most unpopular jobs would have been the tax collector. Three reasons. The first of all, the tax collector was seen to be disloyal. Well, basically, a tax collector's job, they would sit at a booth, people would walk past on various highways, and the tax collector would get money from you, almost like the toll gates here in Michigan. He would sit there and he would accept your money. But here's the thing. He was a Jewish person who would get that money and then he would give it to the Roman Empire. And here we've got a guy, interestingly, his name's Matthew. The other Gospels call him Levi. You know the Levitical priesthood? They were the holy people, the set-apart people. You shouldn't be a good Jewish boy from the tribe of Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth giving money to Rome. Disloyal. They were not loyal to the Jewish nation. They were seen as being betrayers. Secondly, they were dishonest. The way a tax collector would make money was that they would take a certain amount of tax and anything on top of that went straight into their pockets. That's how they made their salary. So they were known for being dishonest. But thirdly, they were known for also being quite dirty. Here's why. A Jew was not to have anything to do with a Gentile. Yet by nature of the travelling roads that would come where the tax collector would sit, he would constantly be in touch with Gentiles, deeming him unclean. And here we have a person, Matthew, sitting there at a tax collector's booth when the young rabbi from Galilee, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and calls him. And as our brother and sister in the choir sang just a few moments ago, when you meet the Lord Jesus, you can never ever be the same. And that is Matthew's story here. In fact, when Matthew writes this, If I were Matthew, I'd be tempted to write it this way. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew and Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. That part about including that you were sitting at a tax collector's booth, you'd probably drop that out. Okay, you, if you're writing this, you don't want to put yourself in that sort of light, yet that's what grace does. It makes much of what Jesus can do, even though we are unworthy. It's amazing that, that Matthew gets up and follows him, but the story doesn't end there. While Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and spent time with Jesus. Now, we don't make much of that. Again, we just sort of read that, but think about that for a moment. The tax collectors were dishonest, they were dirty, they were disloyal, and now you have a bunch of them fraternising at a party and there in the middle of them is the Son of God. I don't know what's going on in that party, but I do know that what we discover from the Gospels is that Jesus was often referred to as a drunkard, and he was a partier. Now, we know that's by guilt by association, but here's Jesus in the midst of this loving sinners. We don't have Jesus. I don't think it doesn't say here that Jesus turned up to the party where many tax collectors and sinners uh, turn up and then Jesus says, sorry, uh, you're dressed inappropriately. You'll have to go to another room. I'm a rabbi. Jesus may well have heard a crude joke. There may well have been dishonest tax collectors talking in the corner about their profits. Maybe some ladies of the night, they're dressed inappropriately. We don't know what's going on at the party, but there is something attractive about Jesus where sinners feel they can come and meet this man. And this leads me to my first observation in this text, and that is what does it mean to exude grace? What does living grace look like? The first thing is this. Living grace means loving sinners. Let me repeat that. Living grace means loving sinners. As I said here, Matthew is a sinner. He sees himself in a negative light. He doesn't omit the fact that he has missed the mark. You know, but this is not just Matthew's story. This is my story. This is your story. We all have elements of shame in our life that Jesus comes and he meets us where we're at, but he doesn't just leave us there. He removes us from that situation, gives us new life. That, my friends, is grace. We sung a great Charles Wesley hymn before. I love um, Charles Wesley and uh, one of the great, and John, his brother as well, they'd write these lovely hymns. But in that song, And Can It Be, unfortunately we didn't have time to sing all the verses, but one of the verses in there says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That is the experience of Matthew. He foregoes what is a lucrative career. In fact, these people would make a lucrative career and that's what surprises me again from Matthew's account. He doesn't say, Jesus said, follow me and Matthew got up and left a lucrative career where he could have earned a good living and had a nice retirement and followed him. But grace will do that to you. It will radically reorganise how you view your life and how you live your life. And the fact that Matthew has a party, has Jesus over, and many other tax collectors and sinners come, 
demonstrates that there is something winsome about the Lord Jesus Christ that people want to receive and experience. I experienced this as a 14-year-old. I was in dire straits. Even though I was raised in a Christian family, I chose not to embrace the truth of what Jesus had done for me till I was in my teenage years. But I tell you what, my life was filled with shame. My life was filled with dishonour. There was deep regret in my life. I was already as a teenager making poor decisions. And I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed, and I felt I could never stand before God. And at that time, God graciously reached out and exuded his grace by showing me what he'd done on the cross for me. And like Matthew, I got up and I followed, and I come here today not as a good person. I come here as one Christian and said, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to get food. Friends, that's what Matthew is about. He invites these people. He wants to share that grace. Why? Because grace means loving sinners. Interestingly, the NIV, the 1984 version, has it in quotes. It's kind of the catch-all. Okay, you had tax collectors and then you had just another motley crew. People who have missed the mark. Guess what this morning? You are in that motley crew. God does not need you on his team. But in his mercy and his grace through the cross, he extends the invitation. And some of you this morning, you may have never received this invitation. Guess what? God is still inviting Matthews to say, come and follow me. It is not what you do. It's in spite of what you do. And yet God graciously offers that wonderful gift of salvation. Even today, you can receive like Matthew did, that wonderful forgiveness and that fresh start. Grace means loving sinners. Now, for my wife and I, we've tried over a series of years to express this in the way that we live. Now, it's not always easy. In fact, we have a little saying in our country, to live above with saints we love. Oh, what joy and glory. To live below with saints we know, that's a different story. Okay? It can be quite hard to love people. And yet, if I'm going to take seriously the role of Jesus and his method here and his approach and his character, and if I'm going to be a reflector of Christ, I need to exude grace even to those people who are very different than me. Here's how it works. I remember one night, or one afternoon rather, we had a birthday party for one of our children. We decided to invite a series of people from the local preschool there in Sydney that we, uh, we were at. And uh, Sydney is quite a liberal community and there is, uh, we don't have churches generally this size in our context. Uh, but in our context, we do have a lot of secularism. And in spite of uh, the various people who are at our daycare, we wanted to show that we love Jesus, not so much with our words, even though we wanted to talk about the Lord Jesus, but in the way that we expressed our actions. So my wife decided to throw a party for one of our children and she invited the people from the preschool. And I remember vividly sitting down in our backyard with the grandparents of Levi, a young boy, interestingly enough, his name is Levi, a young boy sitting there in our backyard and there he was with his two carers, lesbian grandparents. And I remember sitting down with these people and it was very clear as the conversation started that they weren't impressed with the claims of Christianity or the Christian church. Now, as I sat there, I listened, and as they started to have a go at my denomination, as they started to go have a go at the Christians out there, as they started making broad-stroke accusations, 
I listened to them and everything within my being said, you've got to defend God. You've got to defend your church. You've got to defend the gospel. But I looked at my wife and some of you men who are married and and have married up like Jim and I have. (laughs) I looked over at my gracious wife and she had told me before, let's love these people. So I had to, with every ounce of my being, just hold my, my lip, not respond to their little barbs, but think, how can I serve them here today at the party? That's exactly what we did. You know, a month later, my wife and I found ourselves in one of the more diverse suburbs of Sydney at a party at their invitation with many tax collectors and sinners. And we did have a chance to share the gospel. Now, people don't always respond. There's no indication that every tax collector and sinner responded to Jesus. But friends, let me ask you this. Do you know any tax collectors and sinners? When was the last time you exuded grace? It might be the person at your work who's maybe ostracised or is socially awkward. It might be that relative who has mental health issues. It might be that homeless person that you see every day when you pull up to the traffic lights. Friends, how are you exuding this grace that Jesus demonstrates? Grace means loving sinners. But secondly in this passage, I discovered that grace means loathing legalism. Grace means loathing legalism. There is something inherent within every one of us that says we need to do, do, do to be right with God. We need to do things to be loved. This passage, Jesus teaches just the opposite. In fact, he he quotes Hosea 6 verse 6, which in the context of Hosea is written to the people who have God who had forgotten what they were on about and they were just performing actions and he says, you've missed it. You think it's all about legalism and what you do, but it's not. But that's our nature, isn't it? To compare ourselves with others. You know, in our, our family, uh, our children will be here during the second hour. And uh, one of the things about our children, we pray uh, at the dinner table uh, is our practice every night. And uh, one day my son, Adam, came home and he's probably about six or seven at the time. And he said, Dad, I've discovered how you're really meant to pray. And I thought this is going to be interesting. So I asked him, how do you pray? And he says, Dad, you need to do this. And he puts his hand like that, and I said, oh, that's interesting. Normally we just hold hands in our, our house. But I said, look, son, there's many ways you can, the Bible talks about kneeling prayer. It talks about lifting holy hands in prayer. There's many ways that you can do it. So we had a bit of a discussion about this. So any given night at our uh, house, we, we normally hold hands, but every now and then there will be my youngest will put a hand up like this, and somebody else will be doing this. But inevitably, when we pray, it's usually my son Adam, will get to the end of the prayer, amen, And my son will say this, Dad, did you know Zara had her eyes open? (laughs) And when I quiz Adam as to how did you know Zara had her eyes open, he sort of just comes up with some sort of lame excuse. But here's the thing, Adam, even at a young age, loves to compare himself. I'm better because I keep my eyes closed, which evidently he doesn't. But here's the thing, that's our nature. We are always going to put a benchmark, this is our human nature, where even with the Bible, we put rules around the Bible and we say, this is what somebody who's really lovable by God really looks like. 
This is what they do, this is what they say, this is how they dress, this is how they vote, this is what they, where they eat. And we go through all of these things, but that's not what grace is about. You can go through all of these man-made motions and miss the heart of what grace is. And Jesus loathes here the legalism of the Pharisees. And these Pharisees knew the scriptures, but he says, go and learn. And friends, as much as I'd like to say today, I identify with Matthew, as much as we'd like to say we're with the disciples, chances are that many of us in this room are actually more like this group. And this morning, the word of God is saying to you, you need to go and learn. You need to be reminded that you were once a Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. You've forgotten it and you do the outward actions. You're in a Bible study group, you're in a church, you're giving, you do ministry, whatever. But you've lost that heart for people and God's mercy. God is close to the brokenhearted. Friends here, the Pharisees were in great need. You know, they were sick too. They just didn't know it. And that's what makes it even harder here. Friends, somebody said the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidates. Friends, you need to know that you, apart from all of your actions, are deeply in need of the mercy of God. Well, if grace means loving sinners and grace, grace means loathing legalism, so what? What difference does that make? Here are a couple of things that I would like to suggest this morning. The first is this. For some of us in this passage, God is saying to us this morning and reminding us that we need to receive his grace. You may be here today and you feel like Matthew. You feel dirty, you feel dishonest, you feel like your life is a fraud, you feel like you're empty and you've got nothing to offer to God. Guess what? Here's the good news. God is still calling Matthews. Jesus is still saying welcome. And this morning, the application for you is very clear. Come to Jesus. Recognize what he has done. Embrace the fact that he welcomes sinners, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done on the cross for you. This morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, come speak with me. Speak with the person who brought you, but don't leave this place. Searching, searching, searching. The answer is found in the grace of God, which is freely given because of what Jesus has done. Secondly, this passage is going to say to some of us this morning that we need to repent of our lack of grace. Some of us this morning have grown like the Pharisees. Just practice, practice, practice but we've lost the heart. Friends, who are the Matthews in your life? If you don't have any, then chances are your heart may be a little bit hard. And this morning I think God would say, come to me, receive my grace. But we need to say that we are sorry. We need to renounce this hardness of heart and ask God for his help and mercy. Friends, do you see yourself in the Pharisees this morning? If so, good news for you. Just like Matthew was sick, the Pharisees were sick. Jesus would welcome you and he will give you a fresh start, but he wants to use you. Lastly, I think this passage reminds us to recommit to living grace. We need to recommit to living grace. Just as Jesus astounds us by the sort of person he reaches, Jesus continues to astound by calling different people to be his disciples. And he wants you and I to facilitate and to be part of that. So that could look many ways. It could look like joining up and being a volunteer to do hospital chaplaincy, loving sinners and exuding grace by your presence there. It could mean going into prison ministry, 
It could mean loving that bus driver who, who everyone seems to think is a bit odd. It could mean meeting with that person who's going through that rough marriage breakup. But you can be the instrument of grace just as I look at my friend Phil and he makes you feel like the most important person in the room. You can be that to the brokenhearted and the contrite and be God's voice of grace to them. In his book, The Grip of Grace, Max Lucado tells the story of uh, himself, actually, where he would, as his custom, would go down at church after Sunday and he would actually offer a dollar. Wanting to illustrate grace, he would want to offer people a dollar. No charge, free, come, it's yours, no obligation. He said very seldom people would actually come. There'd always be the five-year-old tearing down the corridor to to get a free one. But uh, apart from that, he said very few people did, except one day a lady came along, and this particular lady, Myrtle, uh, came down one day and asked him for a dollar, and Max explained grace, and he gave it to her. Anyway, uh, Max ran into Myrtle apparently a week or so later just in the streets. He said, hey, Myrtle, he joked with her, he said, how'd you go, did you spend your dollar? And Myrtle said, actually, I didn't. He said, what happened? She said, I went back to my seat and as I sat down, a youngster said, could I have that? And Myrtle said these words. She says, it was a gift to me, sure. Now it's a gift to you. Friends, God has gifted you with salvation that you don't deserve to praise the God that you are unworthy of being in his presence. And he does that so that you will freely pass on that grace and mercy and be an instrument of healing in the lives of others. Let me ask you today, who are you passing your one dollar on to? God calls Matthews. He exudes grace. It means loving sinners. It means loathing legalism. May we take into our heart and our feet this very truth. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning that you are interested in our lives, that you still call unworthy sinners of which we each are part. And Lord, you call us to be your children, your servants and your friends. Use us as instruments of grace to those around us. Lord, this morning, for those who here who need to receive your mercy, grace today, lavish it upon them. May they leave this place knowing there is a God who loves and cares for them. Lord, for those of us who perhaps our hearts have grown cold, help us to repent and to trust in your goodness rather than our own. And help us, Lord, to recommit to being vehicles of healing to those around us with this wonderful thing called grace. For we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.